Welcome back, guys. You're listening to the Watts Podcast, the world of athletic therapy, training, and sports. I'm Luca, and I'm here along with Tyler and Rich. Woo-woo! We're back at the CJLO studios for our seventh episode. (laughs) If you haven't checked out our other episodes, make sure to search us up on on iTunes, Google Play Music, uh, the Watts Podcast. That's with a double T. You can also find them on Facebook, Instagram, and on our Podbean website. All right, so we've got a big guest in the house today. Tyler, you want to do the introduction? Absolutely. So, guys, we have another very special guest with us here today. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Scott Livingston. Thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure. Uh, Scott Livingston, he's a certified athletic therapist and strength coach. Uh, He was certified in 1988. And so what I want to kind of know, first question, I guess, uh, for you, Scott, is just after graduating from Concordia, if you could just take us along kind of your journey, kind of go through all the, the things that, that you've done uh, along, along the way, just so that kind of, if I were to say it uh, with the research that I've done, just so that I don't miss anything. So if you could just kind of... What was it like in 1988? <laughs> <laughs> were you even born in 1988? No. Um, <laughs> What have I been doing since since graduation? Is that what you asked me, sort of thing? Or uh, yeah, just a little yeah. meandering yeah. life of, <laughs> yeah. of me. Um, well, when I got certified in 88, I graduated in 87 as an AT. Uh, I worked in a private clinic for a couple of years. Um, didn't really like that. And at that time, it was a really difficult uh, world to get a job in athletic therapy. Uh, really, you couldn't bill for what you did. Uh, you know, without going into all the dirty details, it was a difficult time. And I almost left the profession. And in uh, 1989, I was working in a sports store. I'd left the clinic and uh, was kind of starting to move away. And gentleman named Ron Rappel, who uh, some people listening might know, who used to be the head therapist at Concordia. He had uh, come back to Concordia. I'd worked with him as a student for a couple of years, and he was now looking for an assistant therapist. And at the time, um, there really was no such thing in Canadian schools as a strength coach for sports, uh, for sports teams. Okay. Uh, there was guys who would sort of haphazardly do it as the strength coach for the football team or whatever. And they really just did it as a sort of a fun thing. And, uh, I had sort of learned about the NSCA and, um, decided to go down and do the exam. I got certified as a strength coach. So I was probably one of the first guys in Quebec certified as an NSCA certified strength coach. And, and so I suggested to Ron, why don't we create a job at Concordia? And, um, basically he came up with 5k to pay me to work as the full-time strength coach and assistant therapist in 1990. And that's what I did for my first year. And then I started to build on that, worked at Concordia over uh, eight years um, you worked at Concordia as a... As I was a, the therapist and strength coach for okay. the, all the varsity athletes. Okay. Yeah. So Ron and I worked across the street. In those days, um, you know, if you were coming out of uh, exercise science, um, there really wasn't a lot of opportunity for students to learn or get experience other than the varsity program across the street. So we were kind of like the the first place everybody went to to try to get an opportunity to do interning and things. And Ron and I spent a lot of time actually expanding that. We started uh, sort of the program into uh, a lot of the SAGEPs. The SAGEPs didn't have therapists. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the SAGEPs didn't have therapists. The junior major hockey didn't have therapists. You know, it was kind of like an empty cavern of opportunity there that uh, didn't really exist. And so Ron and I did a lot of work around that for a few years, opened up some venues for people and, then in 1998, I was kind of um, tired of, of the work I was doing there. I wasn't really growing as a person. So I looked for an opportunity with the Habs and they weren't hiring somebody. And so um, their head therapist actually was down at the draft in New York uh, at the time and ran into a guy from the Islanders who was the assistant GM and he was looking for a strength coach. So um, I got an uh a phone call and said, you know, why don't you go inter- interview for this job? So I went down to uh, Long Island, uh, did an interview um, with three different people, got offered the job. Nice. They asked me to come down on Friday to come back on Monday to start working. So <laughs> flew home, packed my bags and flew back, uh, worked for a camp for a couple of weeks and then took a job with the Islanders and uh, for worked for them for a year. It was a bit of a gong show, moved my whole life down there. Um, left the Islanders, took a job with the Rangers, worked for them for two years as their strength coach, AT. Got uh, released from the Rangers by Glenn Sather. I came to the Rangers the year after Wayne Gretzky retired and Mark Messier came back to be the the captain. And um, 
lost my job with the Rangers and was kind of floating around in New York, did a Pilates certification for, uh, for fun and uh, for I don't know why. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, dated a girl in New York after my divorce and then uh, had an, then the job with the Canadians came up and I went back to Montreal and started as the strength coach AT for the Habs, worked for them for uh, eight years till 2009. And during that time, I opened my business here in Montreal. Uh, yeah. To, uh, Built a business called High Performance with my wife, uh, Jamie uh, Sikaski. And um, during that time, got involved with an organization called B210 that was supporting Olympic athletes. Started working with a lot of Olympic athletes. And then uh, combined my business with the business that we were in, called it Premier Performance, which was just a few years ago. And so now we have a training studio that employs about 35 people. And uh, Jamie and I basically teach what we uh, what we do professionally. And that's that's my Short, long story. Wow. That's crazy. You went over all our questions. <laughs> we, That's awesome. We have questions. <laughs> Where to well, start? Ruin them all for you. There you go. Yeah. When, uh, I get, when I get going, it's... Uh, <laughs> I, usually I was kind of wondering. So you were you had the position of athletic therapist and strength and conditioning coach with uh, three different hockey teams. Did you have... Were you doing different things uh, with, those, with those three teams? Yeah, well, the first two teams, the Islanders and the Rangers, really hired me more as a strength coach than a therapist. I only got the job with the Islanders because I was the only guy that interviewed out of 16 people who could skate. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I got that job. And, you know, I was basically working as a strength coach. The therapists didn't, they were American therapists. They kind of recognized that I, they knew how to skate as well. You used to play a lot of rec hockey in between, uh, in between morning skating games with those guys. It was actually a lot of fun. But, um, they didn't really want me. It was there was a little bit of a, we call it a, you know an animosity towards my ability to be a therapist and their what they did. So everybody was protecting their zone, their domain of practice. And I mean that's always been a story around uh, one of the reasons why I do what I do now and the teaching that I do around therapy and strength and conditioning and call it reconditioning is because I believe that the two worlds should cohabitate. Okay. And as I was growing up and still, they, they, they fight a lot. They, they don't see eye to eye very well. So I was part of that at that time, uh, doing what I was as a strength coach. When I came back to Montreal, I actually ended up working with a guy named Graham Reinben, who's the head therapist of the Canadians. And yeah. Graham actually was my student. He used to have to sign somebody's hours as an SAT. I don't think they think they've gotten rid of the SAT concept now, but I was Graham's SAT. And uh, so Graham and I were good friends. And so he and I started working together and he, you know, knew I was a therapist and wanted me to work more in the act of rehabilitation and rebuilding of the athlete. So I finally really got to do what I liked doing when I came to back, back to Montreal. You, you mentioned teaching. What were you, what courses were you teaching here? I taught in Concordia through the nineties, uh, you know, pretty much anything that was lab oriented for all the different courses at the time. I mean, they've changed a lot, but I taught the emergency care lab. I taught the prevention lab, which was all the taping and stuff. I taught okay. uh, rehab labs, uh, modalities labs back in the 90s. I pretty much did every lab that there was. And then the, my last year that I was with Concordia, the course that's now become, I guess, a strength and conditioning course or something, I was um, the second professor of it. There was a guy... Uh, Dr. Sellers, who was, uh, kind of started the course and then my, his, the next year he handed it over to me and I taught it for a okay. year. Yeah. Cool. So, um, you were saying, so about trying to combine, you know, the athletic therapy and strength and conditioning together through this reconditioning, uh, um, I guess, uh, movement mm -hmm. that you call, um, I hear personally, I hear a lot of ATs come out of school, uh, saying that they'll do their CSCS. Uh, with the NSEA and become a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, do you believe that the athletic therapy program today uh, teaches the necessary skills to become a strength coach? I don't know the core, the program, the core courses within the context of the program to be able to comment on whether it prepares you adequately or not. I mm -hmm. think the at the end of the day, um, I think it's a rarity that a university program now um, teaches you the practical application side of, of anything. Yep. Really, you know, university has always been designed to sort of uh, 
make you critically think, um, go out and research, uh, understand the principles and foundation of what it is that you do. But uh, ultimately, if you want to be a strength coach, as an example, with that science background, what you need to do is go out and practice. Yep. So whether you're working at, you know, energy cardio or some gym or whatever, uh, you know, there's lots of different facilities now, far more than there were when I was young, whether it's a CrossFit f- facility or whatever, you've got to get out there and do those things and actually apply uh, and sort of experiment with the knowledge that you're learning from a, from a foundations perspective mm-hmm. <clears throat> with what is truly applied side. Um, and then ultimately, you know, go on and do the, uh, you know, the postgraduate work, whether it's a master's or PhD on, you know, the science of what you're doing and understand the, the, the sports science that underpins what you're doing. I didn't do a master's Uh, at that time. It wasn't something that people did as often. Mm -hmm. Um, and it just never was, I did a PhD in life basically. (laughs) That's all you need. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, being a strength and conditioning coordinator with, uh, several uh, NHL professional hockey teams. What does that position entail? Um, well, I mean, it, de- it really is dependent on the team. But for me, um, you know, I did it in a couple of different ways. Uh, one was th- I, as a therapist, acted as the person who rebuilt people when they were broken, um, made sure that they were uh, healthier or as healthy as possible by establishing sort of frameworks around how they warmed up, how they took care of themselves, how they recovered. Um, so this in, was both on and off ice? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the, well, that was one of the things during my career, uh, probably the thing I'm most proud of as a professional, because when I started in the NHL, I, you know, I could skate, I could play hockey, but I really didn't uh, know how to run drills, how to run a practice or anything like that. And by the end of my career, I was really able to take pretty much any player position and take them out on the ice and skate them. Uh, and work them out and train them. Nice. So I, I made it my operative uh, belief system as a practitioner that I could take somebody from point A, being that they were completely broken, yep. to point Z when play, they were yeah. back playing. Yeah. And that's really what I loved to do. And so I would do that. I would take care of all the off-season uh, programming. So I used to build a manual every year that had a video digest background to it and stuff. And in those days... You know, you it wasn't as digital, so you didn't have the internet to operate off of. We would make DVDs, and the guys would get them. And but I was actually one of the first guys who was building manuals with a DVD backup that sort of guys could watch and see the exercises come to life and what they had to do. And I would produce one of those every year, so the guys would have a program when they would go back. It was a generic program, so most players, you know, would have their own guy that they were training with in the summer. In the, yeah. But my viewpoint was I wanted to establish a belief system and a sort of a fundamental sort of ideology around the way we prepared to be a Montreal Canadian or a Ranger or whatever. And that the guys, the guys that they were working with would take what, what I was doing more seriously because I, I presented something that was uh, classy, professional, well scripted, etc. cetera. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the off season was, you didn't usually train a lot of guys because most of the guys in the NHL don't live in the towns. That right. They, they went back home in. with their own. I would usually have six, seven guys in the summer that, that I would, would train and there would sometimes be an injury, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then in the, in the in season, you're trying to working with the whole team, but you're working with the guys who don't play a lot. You're training a lot. That you know, you're working with goaltenders who weren't playing a game, you're working with the injured guys, and then every so often you're running an off ice workout when the coaches want to give the guys a break from the ice, or you want to keep the guys maintaining their, their general fitness that supports what they're doing on the ice. Cool. Uh, when you started out at high performance sport, what was your kind of vision behind that? Um, my wife and I, uh, well, the time we were dating and, uh, I had sort of, I was looking for a, an opportunity to sort of, um, have a place to work outside of the Canadians cause I was getting asked a lot, but my vision was really that I never believed. And I, I sort of caveat that, that, that I think is the sport, the classic sports medicine clinic is an important part of our community of support for people, but I didn't like, uh, what I call a classic sports medicine clinic. I felt it was more reactive than proactive in the way that it approached things. So essentially you waited for somebody to hurt their shoulder. They came in the clinic and now you rehab them. And my viewpoint was that you could, that there was a, you know, a lot of people were putting a lot of money into their bodies starting more and more uh, when we started our business. 
and people were spending money on personal training, you know, whether it was 60, 70, 80 bucks an hour to see a personal trainer. And my viewpoint was that why don't you combine the world of training and the world of therapy, make it more proactive so that you're actually making people healthier and kind of circumventing them ever getting injured. And when they did get injured, you would return them much more rapidly. So I wanted to build a model where it sort of uh, commingled therapy and training in the same environment. So we have a we built in more of an open concept facility, one where you know you walk in and there's clinical tables, there's the gym, and there's really nothing that separates that in those two environments. So your feeling is more that you're coming to get healthy and be fit, and the therapy is really just a supportive mechanism to do that. Um, yeah. And I believe that I never really liked the insurance paradigm that I thought I felt the insurance par- paradigm. Um, defined us as clinicians and as a, athletic therapists, limited us to having to compete with, you know, other therapeutic uh, professionals like f- physiotherapists, etc., who probably had more historical context to ride on than we did. And so we were always kind of trying to be them. And my viewpoint was instead of being them, let's be something else that's completely different, that that is almost not is liberated from the concept of insurance so that, you know, people don't come into my business with this thing. Well, can I get it back on my insurance? They come in with more of the mindset of, I want to be healthier. I want to move better. I want to run my triathlon or whatever. And you're going to help me. And you have more knowledge than the average personal trainer has. So that was the business model. And, and it just kind of grew over time, um, into what it is now. Yeah. Kind of coming back to your point about uh, having strength and conditioning at school. I think that's a really important point that kind of differentiates us from other healthcare professionals or personal trainer. We're able to kind of, uh, be able to treat patients right away after their injury, but also kind of progress that and make sure that injury doesn't happen again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm just really curious, uh, um, in regards to that, how do you see the future of these two professions, um, you know, because they've always been kind of colliding against each other. Uh, how do you think we can build a culture where, I guess, we combine these two professions, like in reconditioning, but more in like the university? Um, well, I think it's, um, you know, the university is always going to be, uh, I would say, somewhat reactionary to what happens from an innovation innovation practice externally so you know a university will generally not be the innovative side of things i mean there is an element of that when you get into postgraduate study etc but when you look at your core programming the the program is really about investigating creating foundation you having those foundation principles and abilities to do things but what i think will happen over time I hope it does anyways, is that, and, and I think you see the core curriculums changing over time, people recognizing that is <clears throat> that you start to commingle these things while you're in school and understand that nothing, I think we become too box oriented in the definition of things. Mm-hmm. This is right. strength and conditioning and this is therapy. Really, yeah. they're, they're not, they're all one and the same. Mm-hmm. It's about you understanding how the human body works, how it moves, and then having the ability to go and look at it and assess it. The strength that you have is as therapeutic professionals in school that a classic strength coach wouldn't have, or a personal trainer wouldn't have, a kinesiologist wouldn't have is they're not being taught how to take somebody and actually manually assess them. And so the strength you have immediately is that you can look at something and figure it out. So, you know, we're often taught as strength professionals to look at a squat and say, okay, why is that guy shifting? Mm -hmm. Well, you might be shifting at the bottom of your squat because you have something that's what I call hardware oriented, meaning there's something structural in that joint that's not working and maybe your hip or ankle. Or you might have something that's neuromotor, which is more software oriented. Well, the advantage you have as therapists who who have studied therapeutic abilities is you can actually go and look at that and figure out why, right? Whereas a kinesiologist doesn't get to learn that. They don't get to learn how to put their hands on somebody. Mm -hmm. So all they're going to do is look with visual field and say, he's shifting and I'll maybe try this cue or that cue to change it, mm-hmm. and maybe I'll give him this stretch. So what you guys have as a strength now that that 
I discovered while I, you know, when I commingled mingled those worlds, but as being taught more is, is you really have that advantage to, to seek and yeah. to look at things differently. Yeah. But what about on the other end of the spectrum where, uh, I guess strength and conditioning coaches or kinesiologists, uh, would dig deeper into, um, I guess, um, like aspects of like sports science and, uh, higher, high performance, uh, research and working with like tracking and training loads and managing them and mm -hmm. like stuff that I guess athletic therapists wouldn't necessarily uh, invest time in because they're learning all these, um, all this foundation on manual therapy and whatnot. Um, so do you think there's a way where uh, that like an athletic therapist would be able to like get all, all these different skills together and become? Absolutely. Well, if, I think, Within the context of the program, you know, over time, I'm sure monitoring and things like this will become a bigger part because it's, mm -hmm. you know, analytics and monitoring and things are becoming a bigger part of sport performance. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to be in human performance, you're going to have to digest that while you're in school. It's not something that you can ignore even because you're a therapeutic practitioner. Okay. Um, I think... At the end of the day, there's always going to be people who specialize or become very um, definitively uh, capable in a certain area or, or, or specialization of what they do. You know, yep. you're going to have a guy who wants to be a track coach, you're going to be a track coach, and they're going to dial down on all the specificity of that. You may, um, you know, look in the acumen of what you want to be as a therapist and work in, in that. From my perspective, and this is what I teach in reconditioning with Jamie, is teaching a language of commonality of common practice. So you may be a strength coach and you may be a therapist, but if you've learned in my viewpoint, reconditioning or the, the, the conceptual model of what we teach, mm -hmm. then you can speak the same language as you. And right. you may be more interested in what's going on from a performance paradigm. And you might be more interested in what's going on from a thera therapeutic or call it foundational paradigm, mm -hmm. but at least you can say, well, look, Tyler, he's not moving well and I need him to work, to, to work on these three things before he really starts to load up that squat. And then you can go, okay, but how, how much does he need to be able to do that really well? Or you can come back and say, you know what? I saw him in the gym and he wasn't doing this or wasn't doing that. Can you figure out why? So I yeah. can figure it out so I can move him in the right direction. So now you guys respect each other mm -hmm. versus disrespecting each other, yeah. which is what it is. Yeah is to is some right degree now. Yeah. now sometimes, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's so much more, I guess it's so much better communication between these two different professionals. And I think in the end, it's going to benefit the patient a lot more. Mm. Uh, I hear often kind of, it's like, oh yeah, I finished with my physio and then they kind of send me off to somebody else, but there's not much, uh, there's not much communi communication that goes on in between those two professionals. So kind of having that full ecosystem yeah. Uh, it's really awesome and it's really great uh, for sure for athletes and patients. Well, and that's the animal of human performance, um, you know, nowadays that maybe you guys don't necessarily know about because you're still in school. But when you get into uh, what I would call true performance uh design for athletes or 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 people who want to achieve things it's no longer compartmentalized into well go see the strength coach or go see the 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 therapist you you really ha literally have these performance integration teams around mm -hmm. these athletes or yeah. around these sports teams and you're looking at you know every aspect of their performance whether it's mental whether it's physical whether it's emotional whether it's social whether it's creative etc and so as young therapeutic practitioners, what you need to understand and what your listener needs to understand as you guys are growing is that you need to take in those things and recognize that you are one piece of a big puzzle picture. And the more you sort of understand those other things, the better practitioner you're going to be as a therapist, because you're going to know that there's a mental element to that. There's a, you know, whether it's pain, like pain now, we know there's a lot of pain science going that's coming out more and more about pain not necessarily just being um mechanical but psychological so if you you can be dealing with all the mechanical elements of pain but if you're not dealing with the psychological side of that you're going to be missing the boat and we know that there's things like nutrition and stuff that are driving problems etc so this this is stuff that didn't exist when i was a kid in this industry that now you can look at and become more aware of. And so if you're going to be really good at what you do, 
Um, the more you know about those things and bring that into your practice, the the more um, you know sought after you will become. Mm-hmm. And just touching upon the being a piece uh, of the puzzle um, within a high performance environment, uh, where because you are used to working with Olympic athletes uh, nowadays, um, where you know how over there in uh, institutes such as the INS or um, um, or in Ontario, I think they have their own institute there. Um, how there's usually a team that surrounds the athletes over there. Um, however, you're, you're used to working with the athletes as sort of a private consultant, uh, from what I understand. And um, I was, how would you, how would I ideally organize a high performance institute if if you were to organize one? Because you intervene as a private consultant, but at the same time, they also have a team that surrounds them. Like they need an mm-hmm. individualized approach, but how do you, like, how do you make things work? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've, I've punched into these situations in a lot of different ways, uh, whether it was to be a part of an actual performance team around an athlete that was cultivated or created by whether it was an institute or by B210 that I was a part of, or mm-hmm. whether it was being part of it with a professional sports team. I've also been a, what I call a parachute or drop-in practitioner into one of those models. And, you know, every environment is different. Ultimately, um, the more you understand the language of, of community and the respect of your colleagues, yeah. um, the better off you're going to be. So I believe fundamentally when you ask me how I would design that, I think it's one of the reasons why uh, with my wife we've created reconditioning because I believe in, in a more empathetic environment amongst practitioners, like everybody understanding what everybody else does. I think mm-hmm. too often people learn things in silos. You learn to be a mental prep practitioner or, or that's how it's been taught over many years. And I think now you're starting to see people recognize that they need to sort of uh, cohabitate a little bit. Right. Yep. Um, and so that's the that's the approach I take is um, the more I know about what you do, the more I will respect it and vice versa. And then we start to recognize what part of the, I call it the athlete bank account I, I can withdraw from. So okay. when I look at an athlete or any human performance project, I look at they have a bank account of time and energy that they can put into being the athlete or the performance professional that they want to be. So each one of us in a team or working with them have to be aware of how much money's in that bank account. And so I may, you may say to me to do a really good job, Scott, in training that guy, how much money do you need? And I might say, well, I need 80 bucks worth of time and energy. Well, if he's only got a hundred bucks in the bank account, I, it might, I might do a great job with 80 bucks, but if I need 80 bucks worth of time and energy and you need 60 bucks and he needs 50 bucks and you need 40 bucks, there's only a hundred bucks in the bank account. Mm-hmm. So we have to now define, you know, what are the things that really this person has to improve and change? And maybe my role, even though I'd like to see him jump higher or have less injuries or whatever, isn't quite as important as his mental because his mental is the thing that keeps rubbing him off of his ability to perform. Right. So as a team, we have to figure that out. And then once we know that, well, then your money and your withdrawal becomes more important than mine or mine becomes the most important. So that's how I look at building a team around okay. an athlete. I have a pretty uh, juicy question. So a lot of people, when they think about Scott Livingston, they're like, oh my God, he's a guy who works with uh, Eric Gay, uh, Michael Kinsbury, Uh, Tessa Virtue and all those other athletes. How do, can a therapist kind of achieve that kind of clientele? Or how did you, how did... Pure, unadulterated luck. No, uh, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I, I, it's a great question. And I think it, it it's probably, um, you know, looking back at when I was a young person and I looked up at whoever was doing what I wanted to do, you have this perception that, you know, I'd like to launch myself into that reality. Uh, you know, it comes with time and effort and process. And, you know, I, I toiled as a therapist and strength coach at Concordia for a long time, sometimes felt like I was never going to work um, with some really elite athlete projects. And, you know, over time, but my focused on doing really good work and being the best I could be at my craft. And over time, built a reputation that 
somebody chose to engage me, you know, for a certain role. And then that helped me springboard into another role, which helped me springboard into another role. And so these, you know, they're all dominoes of life that sort of click uh, over time. And so all of a sudden you find yourself looking back and yeah, I mean, I mean when I, if I do sort of a, a minding the gap of where I've come from in my life and where I am now, and I look back at that, that course of the athletes that I've trained, I've been, you know, very honored and very privileged to work with probably, uh, you, you know, the list of people that I've worked with, some of Canada's best athletes in the last 10, 15 years. But um, I did all the same stuff that you guys are doing at school and, and will do in the future of your lives. And maybe it'll come faster to you because, you know, there's offer, opportunities that come uh, because of the information um, highway that's out there that's so much more, you know, explosively available to you. So your step forward into working with those people might be faster than mine was. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's all about the process of, of, of becoming good at what you do um, and earning that, you know. I think that's the one thing I would say as a old cat to young cats is that you have to be careful <laughs> not to let the, I call it the YouTube experience, um, define your experience. You know, your experience comes from real experience. Right. You can right. go and watch it on YouTube, but you need to do it and see that it didn't work. And then, mm-hmm. you know, make that mistake 16 times to make it, you know, recognize that now, okay, uh, now I know how to do it, you know? So, so I guess go out there and try it out for yourself. Yeah. Awesome. And I mean, I, I think that's the most important thing. I, I think sometimes, you know, school is, uh, a very important element of the underpinning of what we know, but experience, doing, trying, failing, succeeding. I, I don't actually like the word failure. I look at it more as opportunity. I think failure, the true true definition of failure is when you don't accomplish something, but you don't learn from it at the same time. So whenever something happens didn't, that you didn't want to have happen, and then you learn for, from it why, then that's just a a success opportunity. It's going to take you in another direction, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we're always doing that. And, and the more you do that, the more you're going to recognize the next pathway and the better pathway and, and be able to solve uh, problems for people. And when you can solve problems, then people seek your services, you know? Now, because we are talking ma- like mainly to students on this podcast, uh, We'd like to touch a bit upon your reconditioning course. Um, we've yeah. spoken a bit about it up till now. Um, but just to, as kind of like a side note, you talk a lot about uh, building robust athletes. Um, and that's like a concept that you and your wife speak of a lot. Um, can you tell our listeners uh, why making an athlete, uh, athlete robust is important? And like before going into that, like what exactly is a robust athlete? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, for me, I think that what gets mixed up in performance training is this concept of just plain training performance. So as a strength and conditioning professional, you're classically learning to um, create and use methodology to achieve the goal of changing an athlete's performance in a test. So Mm -hmm. you measure it, you measure their ability to jump higher, lift more weights, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, that's what I call a capacity. So for me, robustness is underpinned by two things, capability, how you move, and capacity, what you move. So uh, the what and how much you move. So you've got speed, endurance, strength, all the physiological mechanisms of, of what you do. And then you have the capability, which is the neuromotor function of how you do things. And for me, robustness is really, I look at it like, uh, when we all learned to drive, we were taught that we needed to keep a certain number of car lengths between us and the car in front of us. And what happens over time in your, in your life, like in driving is you kind of get, you start to forget about how many car lengths you have. And all of a sudden your body's essentially driving on the bumper of the car in front of you. You've had injuries, postures, uh, certain training methodologies, et cetera, et cetera, that basically reduce that buffer. 
Right. And so now you're driving on the car, car bumper in front of you, and then you go to pick something up, you go to do some jump, you f- you kind of step the wrong way, and boom, now you're injured. And the problem is that that injury now takes a lot of time to fix because not only are you fixing the pathology, but you're trying to return to some level of normalcy, which is re- find that buffer again. Mm-hmm. So my viewpoint is in terms of building robust athletes is building real fundamental capability, how you move and capacity. So you, you now have true numbers of car lengths. You have a true buffer. So even when things become overbearing, your body can absorb that, adapt to it and move forward. Mm-hmm. Training is really just a matter of we apply a load, the body then adapts to it. And then we apply another load. The problem comes when we keep applying that load and we have failure mechanisms in the way that the system works, eventually something breaks. So if we look at how somebody moves and then build the the, the system on top of that, mm-hmm. then we, we avoid a lot of those problems. So it's about building, for me, being a strength conditioning practitioner who has an underpinning of therapy is to build robustness, which means that the athlete's going to be able to take more on recover better and when they do get injured recover and return to sport much more rapidly okay Uh, for this reconditioning course for the listeners and for people and students that are wanting to take this course there's currently two levels right now yeah what are like if someone has take finished level one and is wanting to do level two like what are some of the what could someone expect to be different between well level one is really about understanding the foundation of of assessment and then principles of practice that we use to to sort of classically fix the problem so essentially you have a definitive pathway of assessment that allows you to sort of discriminate whether something is as i said earlier hardware oriented or software oriented based on that you're going to apply certain techniques to change change the way the person moves and get them to move better. Right. So it might be neuromuscular coordination or con- control-oriented stuff, or it might be actual mobility, changing the, the, the tissue uh, extensibility, the joint uh, mobility, so that you, and then re, regaining that and using it. So you learn all that in the first level. Okay. The second level, what we do is we kind of throw it on its, on its back and we say, okay, let's assess all mo- human movement and we do a lot of video analysis, mm-hmm. and then we say, okay, what are the elements of that movement that we need to discriminate so we can decide what we want to train and fix and change and and okay. better in order for somebody to to move better? So if I took an example, like classically, I had a, a guy who was a field goal kicker a few years ago that was brought to me, um, now plays for UCLA, but uh, you know he was training, strength training, and he was a field goal kicker. So you guys can decide as you listen to the story what you know doesn't make sense to you and you can tell me what you think doesn't make sense but this kicker comes to me and he has groin problems okay and uh, i looked at him and he had a whole bunch of functional imbalances that i needed to cleaned up so right. i cleaned them up but the other problem was that he was training like a classic football player so he was benching squatting deadlifting cleaning etc so he's getting really strong in those lifts but he's a field goal kicker yeah. So does that does that resonate when you with you when I say that that he's a field goal kicker but he was benching, squatting, deadlifting and and power cleaning. The problem is that what does he do with his body? He creates a pillar on a left side and swings a leg through and hits a ball over and, and over. over again. So yeah. one side of his body does one thing and the other side of his body does something completely different. Absolutely. But he didn't train it to support that. What he did was train to build a lot of capacity Mm -hmm. on a poor capability. (laughs) So we had to refabricate his capability and then build the capacity to do what he was doing with his body, but also support the imbalance of what he was doing. So, you know, he's doing a lot of one thing. So let's try to make sure that, you know, let's counterbalance that a little bit and make sure that the system is supported around it. So as an example, when I assessed him, he had about... 70 degrees in a straight leg raise. Okay. So he's a field goal kicker. 70 degrees in a straight leg raise. Yeah, that's that's a problem, that's, that's right? That's good. You don't have a lot of range of motion, but you're supposed to be kicking a, a, a ball. Right. So these are the kinds of things that we teach in reconditioning is to look at what is that 
person do with Doing, their body? What's the sport? Yeah. What do they have to be able to manipulate, produce? What kind of forces do they have to do? Yeah. And we walk through that and and understand that, and then you assess the person based on not only just sort of a script of what we want to look generally, but also what do we want to look at specifically? What are the specific demands you, under the context of your reality, doing? If you're a firefighter, you know, what is your, what is the firefighter's environment of work? What do they have to do? Do they have to pick somebody up and put them on their shoulder? Do they have to drag things? Do they have to pull a hose? What positions are they going to be in when they're producing those forces? So it's great to make them strong, but they, can they, are they strong pulling in this rotated position, yeah. bent over like this? Do they have the mobility to, you know, to do that, et cetera? So it's really looking at the, the beast and making sure the beast is prepared to do what it is that it's being asked to do. So kind of going back to the, like sports, a sports medicine team, do you think that's something that strength and conditioning coaches are getting totally wrong? Um, like they're only not, training their athletes to bench 300 pounds, like a, yeah. a lot of weight and squat a lot of weight. You know, without being uh, adversarial, I think that there's a place for um, force development and being strong. But I think where we've gone sideways or made a mistake is that there, you know, all the methodological underpinnings of strength training are based on three sports. One is powerlifting, one is Olympic lifting, the other one is bodybuilding. Those are the animals that created our strength training paradigm, okay? Two of them, your job is to lift as much weight as possible, and the other one is to get as big as possible, okay? Yeah. When you're taking somebody who's hum a human body and they're doing something with that human body, whether it's an athletic en endeavor or a firefighter, their strength is a component part of what they do, but it's only a part of what they do. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, they need to produce a certain amount of force in order to do something that they're asking their body to do. So the convention of all that force production is great. The methodologies around how you do it or create that, very important things to know and understand. But you need to be able to take it out of its context, which was built for how do you lift as much weight over your head or how, how big can you get your biceps to be and put it into an environment of what does this person actually need to do with that, you know, whether it's force or speed or endurance or any of those things, what do they need it for? When are they going to need it? So that's what the strength, the traditional, I would say, strength conditioning um, model has, has, has not done as well. It's doing it better and better and has been doing it better and better in, say, the last 10, 15 years, but it's still uh, an animal with its own, uh, its own, sort of life to a degree. If someone is to take uh, these two levels of reconditioning, um, would you say, I guess I kind of know the answer to the question, but uh, would you say that it's, that they're ready to, to go go out there and then, you know, immediately be a great um, therapist slash strength and conditioning coaches? Or how would you go about it to be able to progress to a level, you know, similar to yours or closer to yours? That's an interesting question. I mean, I don't think you take any course and it makes you ready to do stuff. I think what it does is it provides you, um, you know, a veritable level of perspective that you then need to uh, assimilate and use and apply and try. I think what makes you ready is application after application after application. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you're ready to do it. I, you know, I think... If you ask me the question, would I take this course when I f immediately upon finishing school? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's the thing you want to do the first day you finish school. I, w I think that everybody should finish school and get out and do some stuff, you know. Uh, but it depends on how you approach school. You know, uh, my greatest piece of advice to people who are in school is your biggest mistake is, is to just go to school. You know, if if you really want to be a really world class AT uh, strength conditioning practitioner, it starts on day one um, when you enter into school that you start doing things um, along that pathway that are um, serving you your process. So school is a part of that. Um, experience is another part. So whether it's you're volunteering to go work with a, 
you know, a, a bantam football team where they need a strength program or a warm up program or whatever, and you deliver that, whether you go and work in a camp in the summertime that has a, a multi-sport camp and you're delivering programming and getting kids to train and stuff, whether you're going to work at a, at a fitness uh, facility and you're, you know, just giving mom and pa, uh, you know, their workouts every week, et cetera, you're experiencing that. Right. Um, and, and sort of starting to know whether a, that's really something you want to do, mm-hmm. uh, or you have an affinity for, and now you're, we're learning all the edge, the, the education that underpins it so that when you finish school, you've got something. If you've done that, if you've spent those three years, four years in school and you've, and you've implicated yourself in that, then yeah, I probably would take reconditioning right off the hop and then, you know, live in it for a year and then do level two. And, and, you know, you'd probably be in a place where you certainly could go into some great performance environments and, and really, um, thrive. I don't think, I think reconditioning doesn't give you the foundation in what I would call training principles. Um, that's not what the course is about. It, it isn't there to teach you all the methodological, um, and systematics of training design. It's to it's sort of as an adjunct to it to to mm-hmm. uh, contextualize it a lot. So you still got to do that stuff. You still got to read those books. You still got to Im- implicate yourself in it. Uh, and there's going to be lots of parts of that pathway. Whether you uh, go down to Altus and in, uh, in Phoenix and hang out for uh, two weeks and do their coaching uh, mm-hmm. internship, uh, yeah. you know whatever it is. Uh, you're going to learn lots of the pieces of the puzzle over time and reconditioning is going to be a piece of that. What I feel reconditioning does is it gives you a a productive postgraduate program that gives you construct of how to work with other people and to solve problems using some of your th- the therapeutic tools that you've already learned in school. That sounds nice. Yeah. Yeah. So now compared to kind of when you started out as a strength and conditioning coach, uh, I was wondering what's – what are the things that change the most in the way you train your athletes? Since when I started? Oh, well, like I now, mean, yeah, I mean, when, when I, when I started, I guess I would have, I would have been more like what I was talking about before, which was, you know, a strength coach. I, I would, you know, train build my train. programming, you know, train to train, train to build strength to, you know, uh, I really cut my teeth uh, on the methodology. I was a big believer in the methodology is to teach, you know, all the sets, the reps, the intensities, all that stuff. And, you know, so I, I dialed down on that and read that and read about that and used it. And, you know, I trained my football players and my basketball players, but then I had sort of an, an epiphany point sometime midstream of when I was at Concordia working that there, were, there needed to be more than, to this than just building big, strong guys or gals all the time. And so I, that's when I started to really look at things from a little bit more, what do you do with your body? And mm-hmm. then that changed and it was like a Rubik's cube, you know, of life, basically click, 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 click to now um, and how I apply and do things. So how I train somebody today is radically different than how I trained them five years ago, which was radically different than how I trained them five years before that. I mean, it's really metamorphosized differently over time. Uh, what I look at, what I see, you know, and I've, my experience gives me eyes that I see things that, you know, other people who, who, uh, want to do what I'm doing don't necessarily see right now, you know, um, mm-hmm. because I've seen it so many times, you mm-hmm. know, uh, what, what would you say, uh, would be some of the bigger mistakes that you might have made or had made as a young uh, professional kind of in the field? And what would you have done and, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that retrospective pa- uh, question is always interesting because I think, you know, you know, would you go back and do it differently um, if you could? I don't know that I would because I think every experience is what, you know, twists the Rubik's cube to another place and allows you to become that much better at what you do. Have I had lots of failures? Yeah, I've made lots of mistakes over my career uh, with different projects or athletes. I mean, funny story, when I went in the National Hockey League, as I told you before, in skating, I, you know, I knew how to skate and I thought, you know, I've got to be able to go on the ice and train these guys. So, one of my first training camps at the Islanders, you know, I, I told the coach, yeah, I can, I can get the 
get this guy and run some drills with him. I'll go on the ice, you know. And so I'd learned all these cool things from a guy named Pete Twist, who's uh, been a strength coach in the NHL, and he was using bands and all these neat things to work on, you know, power and speed and agility. I so think, I think that was your latest episode as well. Was yeah, I did Pete yeah. this past weekend, yeah. and <clears throat> we were talking about some of his experiences and things. And I, you know, so I went on the the ice and. You know, it started tying elastic bands to this guy and asked him to sprint. And the, the, the guy looked at me like I was, you know, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You know, and, and he was an old pro and he basically just abused me. And then the GM looked at me and thought I was an idiot. And, you know, it was one of those red faced moments of what am I doing and where am I and how did I get here? You know, and you, it's one of those moments sometimes you have to live through to recognize that you're not ready maybe to do that and you need to learn more and to understand more, understand the environment that you're in. So you can read all the books and you can learn all the drills, but you have to also understand when do they get applied and why and and how does it work in the context of that environment. And so that was one of my uh, many stupid errors in my <laughs> career. But uh, What do you see are the biggest mistakes that new grads uh, make nowadays right after graduating? <clears throat> um. I don't spend a lot of time with a lot of new grads, so I can't say directly what I would say. I think in general, what I have seen over my career is is kind of towards the question you guys asked me before, which is, you know, how do how do we get to working with athletes like you do or whatever is kind of eyes on the on the big money prize versus what am I gonna do now to take each step forward being better. And so ultimately if you can look at that and you can look at Scott Livingston and say, wow, I'd really like to do what he does, but that should be all it is. What what you need to know is you need to do, you build your foundation and what you will become will be something different than me, but ultimately you're going to take your, you're going to walk your path. You can't um, jump on an, on, a, on an escalator of speed and, and get there faster you you will by virtue of having the access to information probably move faster through some processes than i did in my life because i had to go and find it all but you still have to recognize that you have to do it you know so there is no overnight success in this business and and i don't think there is in really any business you know and scott what information have you learned outside um of school uh, that has influenced your career the most? Ooh. Um, <laughs> We're digging deep into it. Well, I, you know, I would say in the last few years of my life, I've learned a lot about mindset and about, uh, you know, knowing um, who you are as a person and recognizing that who you are is probably the most important thing. It's maybe because of my age, it's something that you tend to reflect on when you get into your late 40s, early 50s is a general reality for people. But I think it's important that you understand that, um, you know, the time you are, you guys are going into in your life is really the time to, to, to get in there and chew on the wood, so to speak, like just beat it up and go after it and try it and see. And I think sometimes um, we get too focused on the job that I'm going to get or the thing that I want to try to do. And so I've learned something about what I, what, what I call or what has been told to me is a difference between what we call object referral and self-referral. And object referral is really that we get very focused on the thing I want to do or the mm -hmm. thing I want to have versus the process of getting there. Right. And I think when you, and, and that, being very object referred ends up being very empty. You either get there and you're, it's the, what's the next success I got to do. Or if you don't get there, you, you're really despondent about the fact that you failed. So if you work more on a process oriented a, approach, you know, you, your connection to what you're doing on a day to day is much more valuable. And that's been really valuable for me because to, truthfully only in the last few years of my life, I used to always kind of get to this, I, I called it the climbing of the mountain and then getting to the top, looking around and going, what's the mm -hmm. next mountain? 
and I was never satisfied. You know, it didn't matter if I worked for the Montreal Canadiens, what was the next thing I was going to do and the next thing or worked with Eric Gay or who was the next athlete I was going to train. And now I don't look at it like that. I look at it much more about, you know, okay, this is a project. This is something that I want to achieve, like the mm -hmm. podcast. Right. And, and I work through that process and enjoy the process mm -hmm. of learning uh, what I'm learning, you know. Kind of living in the present moment. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, if you could recommend uh, a book or a textbook for a student or a recent graduate, um, which one would it be? Hmm. Um, wow, there's a lot of good books out there. Um, yes, or a yeah. few. You could recommend yeah. a few, I guess. People don't mind. <laughs> um, I like the book um, Thrive. Uh, is a very powerful book. Um by Seth Godin, it re or, or sorry, not Thrive, Tribes by Seth Godin. That's really good. It's about sort of understanding how you build communities and, and connect with people. And um, I think Tribes is a, a really cool um, descriptor of uh, how to do that. Um, I think um, the book Mindset is really powerful. Uh, it was a, written by a, a woman named... Um, Oh, what's her name again? It'll come to me at some point in the near future. But it's called Mindset, and it basically talks about what I just talked about, which is the <coughs> the person who's very uh, fixed mindset versus uh, growth-oriented. Really good piece to, to read and understand. Because mindset, at the end of the day, is really the thing that drives our, our success. If you have a good positive mindset versus a sort of I-can't-succeed uh, viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So right. I would say that's a, a really good read. The book is by uh, Carol Carol Dweck. Dweck, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Well, you got that in your notes <laughs> already? Yeah. Yeah. You Googled Jeez. it while I was sitting there. Right? <laughs> yeah. All right, awesome. Do the so last question? we got Joseph usually uh, oh. usually asks uh, this question to everyone. Uh, he's uh, our fourth member of the podcast, but he's unfortunately Jeez, busy people. today. Wow. Uh, so Tyler, you want to replace him for today? Yeah, sure. Well, Joe, this one's for you. But uh, Scott, you've you have I think you kind of answered it. You, well, you have, but we'll see. We'll just still, a, just ask we'll, the we'll question. Ask it, we'll ask it. If present, <laughs> but he, if present Scott would have to give advice to. Uh, Scott, first year uh, graduating from Concordia, what mm. would you, what would you give as advice to him? Um, it's like don't be so um, slow down. You know, don't be so uh, focused on you know trying to trying too hard uh, to to get where you think you want to go. You know, I think uh, <clears throat> I thought I wanted to be something or to achieve something and I didn't really know why I wanted to. I just kind of did it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think if I was to sit down and talk to myself, I would probably sit down and say, enjoy the world a little bit more. I, you know, I made, um, whether it was, you know, living with the gal I was, uh, was with in university and settling in too early in my life, maybe getting married too early, uh, you know, um, focusing on all the sort of things of what I would call becoming responsible okay. <laughs> in some sense. You know, I think when you finish school, there's this imposed sense, sociologically maybe imposed sense that you need to do something now. You need to get a job. You need to, you know, start to craft your success. Right. And I think that comes more from the experience. So whether it's you jump on a plane and go experience the world or whether you, you know, um, work a, a, a job so you can go down and spend a month at Altus or whether you, you know, you go and uh, work a bartending job so you can hang with Scott Livingston, you know, a couple <laughs> times a week or whatever it is, you know, I, mean, I say that facetiously, but at the, yeah. you know, it's the truth. Right. I think too often you're, you're, you're like, oh, God, I, I got to get the job and you get, you the, get caught in the rat the, race. And, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's like, you know, two years later you're buying a house or you're you've bought you know you know your nice car and now you're now now all those things are defining what you can and can't do because you've got to pay for them or you got to you got to pay for this thing or whatever so right. i would say don't be so um quick to get settled in settled down structured try to give yourself the freedom of movement where you can go and experience things with all kinds of different people and and find out who your mentors are going to be you know uh i probably didn't get as much opportunity to mentor under people because i settled down too early i i learned a lot of stuff on my own and spent a lot of time 
you know, reading and learning from people in different ways. But I think I wish I wish sometimes I had had the opportunity to go somewhere and just hang with a guy for a month or two. And and I didn't do that because it just I, I settled down too quickly. I got settled into the rat race of get a job, you know. OK, wow. So. Yeah, that's definitely my favorite answer. Yeah, I was really... Out of all our guests. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was glad to hear, yeah. I was happy. Awesome. So uh, I think we're going to wrap it up. Scott, this is going to be your chance to plug in all your details, so you can go for it. Cool. Well, um, if those of you who are interested in reconditioning, we have a website called reconditioninghq.com. We're also on Facebook at reconditioninghq.com. We have a Instagram and Twitter at reconditioninghq.com. We are also individuals, myself and Jamie. I'm at Built by Scott on Twitter, at King O'Pain on Instagram. My wife is uh, at Queen O'Pain on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, you can certainly look us up there. I also have a podcast called Leave Your Mark. Uh, I have a Facebook page on Leave Your Mark. Uh, I'm on iTunes with 11 podcasts. You can please download them. Please like and rate my plugins. site so I can become new and noteworthy in the world. And um, let's see. I think I've covered most of the uh, most of the stuff. And, awesome. Um, you know, you can always tweet me and all that other sort of crazy stuff that Link- I've LinkedIn. become aware of. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn as well. <laughs> <laughs> I've become aware of. I'm probably one of the more socially savvy uh, old guys in the community of ATs, I think. So, I was actually wondering, where does the, the name King O'Pain come from? <laughs> uh, actually, it was a moniker given to me by athletes when I was at Concordia. I used to, <laughs> one of my shticks was I would use manual therapy to create a fair amount of discomfort in the <laughs> athletes to make sure that they really were injured versus, uh, you know, kind of, uh, milking the therapy a little bit. So if you could take the, what I was going to dole out, then I figured you're probably truly, truly injured. So people used to call me the king of pain. <laughs> and then my wife got the moniker queen of pain. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Scott, thanks so much for giving us some of your precious precious time. Sorry, it was a real pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much, Scott. You're welcome. Thank, you. Thank you, Scott. Thanks yeah, for having of me. course. Shout out to CJLO, Allison. Again, thanks Allison. for being amazing as always. <laughs> uh, CJLO provides us with an amazing studio space and allows us to record these episodes. Um, we wouldn't be here without them. And if you haven't already, make sure you check us out on Facebook and Instagram, The Watts Podcast. That's with a double T. Watch out for our upcoming episodes on iTunes, Google Play Music, and Podbean. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you plug back into our next episode. Until then, stay beautiful. We're the start of the summer. <laughs> stay beautiful, guys. <laughs> I'm gonna go